Well, good evening, everyone. We're glad you're here tonight as we begin a new study of a new book of the Bible, which will be Haggai. So we're not going to look at a text proper this evening, but you may want to open your Bible there because we'll point out some things. We'll analyze the text next week. Begin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Word of God, and we thank you for the privilege we have of gathering together to to study it. We thank you for this book of the Bible. We pray that as we would spend the next weeks going through it, your spirit would work through us and prompt the work that needs to be done in all of our minds and hearts. And we will thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If we were to ask most people, what book of the Bible had the most dramatic and immediate impact on the people of God, I doubt too many would say Haggai. But in not saying Haggai, they'd be wrong. Haggai is one book of the Old Testament that is an immediate success story, and there aren't many of those in the Bible. When you are in ministry, you dream of having something happen like does in the book of Haggai. It doesn't happen very often. It would be like when John challenged people last Sunday to be here for a new study to show up tonight and it's standing room only. That gives you some perspective what does happen in the book of Haggai. Now the shortest book of the Bible in the Old Testament is Obadiah. The second shortest book is Haggai. But don't let its size fool you. Haggai is informative, it's important, it's inspired, it's impacting. This little book is potent. It will take us about six expositions to get through it all. This book did prompt a nation and did prompt individuals to get things done for God when they hadn't been doing a whole lot. Dwayne Lindsay quoted Frank Gabeline and said, The truth is, very few prophets have succeeded in packing into such a brief compass so much spiritual common sense as Haggai did, and few prophets ever saw the immediate success Haggai saw in his ministry. So what we would like to do in the next, that's going to be about six studies, as near as I can calculate here, is take you through this little book known as Haggai, and to begin the study tonight, we're going to do so by asking and answering six introductory questions. I like to do that when we start a book, it just kind of sets the stage for where we're going. And the first question we ask is, why study the book? And the first reason we always give to any book we study is because it's an inspired book from God. There's the answer. That's the only answer we need. Haggai is an inspired book of God, and there are only 66 of those books in existence. There are, as we've seen in Deuteronomy, no unimportant or uninspired words in the Word of God. All words are important. All words are inspired. All words are God-breathed. In these two short chapters that total 38 verses, it is stated at least 25 times that this is the Word of God. God's authorship and authority of this book is repeatedly stated over and over again. I mean, time and time again, as you go through this book, in 25 different statements, it'll say, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord declares. So what cannot be denied from this book is that this is a book that says it's the word of God in 70% of its verses. The fact that Haggai belongs in the Bible has never even been questioned. The ancient Jewish teachers regarded Haggai as one of the 12 minor prophets in which they called the book of the 12. Haggai is listed as one of those books. 
Now, the title of the book comes from the name of the prophet. The name of the prophet in Hebrew is Hagi or Hegai. In Greek, it's Hagias. And in the Latin Vulgate, it's Agus. The first major collection of Hebrew manuscripts was made by Benjamin Kennecott. He listed 615 manuscripts of the Old Testament. The main modern discovery of Hebrew manuscripts are the Cairo Synagogue manuscripts that were discovered about 10,000. And then, of course, the Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts that turned up about 600. Moshe Goshen Gottstein estimates the total number of Old Testament Hebrew manuscript fragments throughout the world runs into the tens of thousands. Now, the most important Hebrew Old Testament manuscripts date from the 3rd century B.C. to the 14th century A.D., and many of those Hebrew manuscripts contain the book of Haggai. You have the Codex Chirensis, the Aleppo Codex, the Codex Leningradinus, you have the Babylonian Codex, they all contain the book of Haggai. Then, in the Dead Sea Scroll finds in Qumran Cave Number 2, all the minor prophet books were found, including Haggai. And then in 1952, in caves southeast of Bethlehem, a scroll was found in the cave that contained Haggai. Haggai is specifically quoted one time in the New Testament. Haggai 2.6 and Haggai 2.21 is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 12.26. And in that Hebrews quotation, it is clearly stated that this is God speaking and these are God's promises. Then you have the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, you have the book of Haggai. So what all of these scrolls say and what all of these manuscripts reveal is this is a carefully copied, preserved, protected, and inspired book of God. We're going to study it for that reason. The second reason we're going to study it is Haggai is a book that teaches that God wants his people to be people of careful thought. Now, if your Bibles are open to the book of Haggai, I just want to point out a couple of verses. Notice verse 5, consider your ways. Notice verse 7, consider your ways. Drop over to chapter 2 and look at verse 15. Consider from this day on. Look down there at verse 18. Do consider, and then later in the same verse, consider. Those Hebrew words, submit ba bakim, in Hebrew, are words that actually indicate you are to be a person who uses your mind. In fact, those words literally, in Hebrew as I would translate it, make careful thought. That's the way I would translate the Hebrew here, make careful thought. And what that says to us is God does not want his people a bunch of airheads. He does not want his people to be irrational or overly emotional. In fact, the emphasis of this word that shows up multiple times in just two chapters is God wants his people to be rational thinkers. He wants his people to be able to use their minds. He wants his people to be thinking people. He wants his people to give careful thought to what they're doing, what they're not doing. He wants his people to be people who give careful thought to God and his word and his will. And Haggai drives that point home. You know, we're living in an emotional, irrational world. In fact, we're living in a world when many religions are just getting emotional and irrational. God says, no, that's not the way it is to be with my people. I want my people to be people who use their minds, not people who've lost their minds. Which brings us to the third reason we're going to study it. Because Haggai's a book that stresses the importance of maintaining spirituality and worship when things are going well. 
You know, when things are sailing along for you and they're going good, it's easy to become lax in a spiritual condition and spiritual commitment. You can stop depending on the Lord. And if things are really going pretty well, you can stop a high level of commitment to God. As Moses said, it's easy to become fat and undisciplined. Well, God's people don't ever want to do that. They don't ever want to become that. If they are experiencing good, positive things, they want to stay focused. They want to stay focused on their relationship with the Lord in good times. They want to stay focused on continuing to get things done for God in good times. What was happening here is God's people had come back to Jerusalem. They were free from the Babylonian captivity. They were enjoying their lives. They were back there enjoying their lives. Things were going great. They're spending time on their own homes building their own homes, refurbishing their own homes, modernizing their own homes. They were spending time on their own families. They were spending time on working in their fields and building their own careers. And as a result of that, they were spending a lot less time on God, a lot less time on worshiping God, a lot less time on focusing on God and his word. That's a formula for disaster. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your family and your home and your business, but God always wants to be kept at a high priority in that. And if God's people lose sight of this, they'll eventually lose the blessings of God. And that is exactly what God will threaten in this very book. When God blesses his people, he expects his people won't put him on the back burner. I mean, when God blesses his people, he expects his people are going to just turn it up a notch in their love for him and their worship for him. Which brings us to the fourth reason we're going to study it. Haggai is a book that stresses the importance of not focusing on taking better care of our own house in the secular world more than taking care of God's house in the sacred world. When we live in this world, we can easily just get sidetracked and we can begin to put ourselves and things and our own prosperity above the Lord. We can be tempted to put our own house above God's house. We could be tempted to invest more on our own building than we do God's. Well, we must make a decision here and use our minds. We must make a decision to always keep God first. Make a decision to always be concerned about God's word, God's will, God's house. God says, you do that. I'll guarantee my blessings will flow to you. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with seeing to it that your house is kept nice, but God says, I expect my people to take good care of my house too. I expect my people to see to it that they are considering me at a high level when they are living life. You know, when I used to travel to different churches to speak back in the 80s, I would usually be taken to, if Mary and the boys didn't go with me, I would usually be taken to someone's home for dinner before the evening service. And oftentimes, I would be taken to a really nice home. And I would just quietly sit there and I would observe. And then oftentimes, I'd be taken to a church that looked like it was run down. Nobody even cared about it. I always thought that was wrong. Now, if you don't have the means to do anything, that's one thing. I mean, if you don't have the means to be able to do things, I suppose that's one thing. But I don't think that was the issue here. It was due to neglect. That's not right. That's not right. 
It's not right for God's people to have beautiful homes because they're pumping all of their money into their own homes and have God's place of worship be some dilapidated shack. That's exactly what's happening in this book of Haggai. And God said, I'm not going to bless you for that. I will not bless my people for that. That's the point he brings out when we go through this book of Haggai. So we're going to study it. We need it. A fifth reason we're going to study this book is because Haggai is a book that clearly develops the positive blessings that can come through obedience. Now, God specifically promises that if you obey me, if you obey me, I can pronounce my blessings on you. In fact, if you have your Bibles open to Haggai, look at chapter 2 and verse 19. Chapter 2 and verse 19, yet from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. What God says is, I bless people who honor me. I bless people who put me at a high priority in life. I bless people who worship me. I bless people who don't give me second-rate stuff. I mean, what God says here is, from this day on, I'm going to bless you because you're finally starting to put me first in your life. And those blessings can come in a variety of ways. God can bless his people spiritually. He can bless his people physically. He can bless his people financially. I mean, a key to this is we make a commitment to keeping God first in our lives. And if we make that kind of commitment, we stay focused on him. God says, I will actually declare blessings on you. So because of the positive blessings that we can actually gain from going through a book like Haggai, we're going to go through the book. Now that brings us to the sixth reason for studying, and that is this book also develops the negative consequences that can come from disobedience. I mean, look at chapter 1 and verse 6. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, what God is basically saying there is you don't realize one of the reasons why I don't pour out all of my wonderful blessings on my people is because they leave me out of the equation. They don't put me first. And God says, I keep track of that. God said, when I see my people not putting me first and not keeping me first in their lives or in their worship, I'll let them exist, but they're not going to flourish. I mean, I can see to it that they don't thrive. I mean, I can cause negative things to hit people who forget about me. I can cause negative things to hit people that forget about me and making me a priority. I can cause them to just eke out an existence and not experience an abundant life. And that's exactly what God is telling his people here. In other words, there are consequences for not keeping the Lord first in life. And the book of Haggai tells this story. So we're going to study it. A seventh reason we're going to study it is because this is a book that clearly teaches that one does not have to stay in a present condition in their relationship with God. I love what chapter 2, verse 19 says. We already looked at it yet. From this day on, I will bless you. You know what that tells us? It's possible for God's people who've been a little lax to regroup, refocus. It's possible for God's people to say, you know what? I haven't been giving God the right priority in my life in things. And therefore, I'm going to get back to the basics of this right relationship with God. 
And there could be, or could have been, as we will see in this book of Haggai, a multiple-year time gap between when one was really dedicated at a high level and that kind of waned and was no longer dedicated at the same high level. I mean, it could be a multi-year time gap. And God says, I'll tell you what you do. You get back to being serious about me. You get back to being serious about my word. You get back on track again, and I will pour out my blessings on you again, and you don't have to stay in a condition of just this meager relationship that we have. You can develop a wonderful relationship with me in which I'll bless you. And the book of Haggai is going to present those themes. So for those reasons, we're going to study the book. Now the second question is, who is Haggai? The actual name Haggai comes from a Hebrew word that many believe is festal or festival. He may have been named for some major feast or on some major feast day. He could have been born. That's uncertain. Jerome said he thought he was of priestly descent, and that is uncertain also. What we do know about Haggai is he was a prophet of God. That we know. And the reason we know he's a prophet of God is because it is stated three times in the book of Haggai that he's a prophet of God. And it's also stated two times by Ezra in his book that he was a prophet of God. He lived and he prophesied at the same time as Zechariah did. Now, Haggai was a prophet, which means he received direct revelatory messages from God. And those direct revelatory messages he got from God were in two areas. You'll certainly see them. One of them was he just foretold the word of God to the people. I mean, he told them what to do, but he also does foretell the future. You're going to see things here that actually in this book, it's a prophet book, Written by a prophet, it'll take us into the tribulation and all the way into the millennium. I mean, you'll actually see that later in the book where he makes some amazing predictions about what God's going to ultimately do for his people. He was singled out by God and gifted by God to communicate the word of God as a prophet to his people. He received direct revelatory messages from the Lord. He communicated those messages to the people. Now, there are no prophets today. The gift of prophecy has ceased. But Haggai was a true prophet of God who actually did get special direct revelatory messages from God. As we mentioned, he lived at the same time as the prophet Zechariah, and also, interestingly enough, at the same time as the Chinese philosopher and politician Confucius. He lived in the same era that he lived as well. Nothing much is known about his parents or his genealogy. We do read an interesting statement in chapter 2, verse 3, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? So what we do learn from that is apparently he was one of the guys who had actually seen the temple of Solomon in all of its glory before it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. He apparently had actually seen the temple standing in all of its glory, and he was one of the guys who came back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel some 50 years later after the temple had been destroyed. The Babylonians destroyed the temple in 586 B.C., but in 539 B.C., the Babylonians were conquered by Cyrus, who was the Persian king, and God stirred Cyrus' heart to permit any Jew that wanted to go back to Jerusalem to go back. And he also gave a decree that permitted Israel not only to return to her land, but he also, in that decree, said, you can rebuild the temple. He was a very sympathetic 
politician to Jewish religion, and he was wise in doing that because God has always promised he'll bless those politicians who bless Israel and curse those who curse her, and he, of course, says that to any individual as well. Well, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah, about 50,000 people decided to go back to the land, and Haggai was probably one of them who went back with the people and began his prophetic ministry. Now, Zechariah began his prophetic ministry in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, and Haggai began his prophetic work in the sixth month of the second year of Darius. So what that means is Haggai is the first prophet, the first prophet to communicate prophetic messages from God to the people after they got back to Jerusalem. In fact, he was the first prophet after the Babylonian captivity to appeal to the people of God and say, hey, you need to get this temple rebuilt here. You're spending your money on the wrong stuff. You need to get this temple rebuilt here. As we mentioned, it would appear from Haggai 2.3 that he actually saw Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. So we may conclude from this that he was one who was exiled to Babylon probably early. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar started taking Jewish people to Babylon in 605 BC. That's when Daniel and his buddies were there. And it's possible at that point, that's when Haggai was actually taken to Babylon. So then about 70 years later, he comes back to Jerusalem about 50 years after the temple had been destroyed. So if that's true, by the time he writes this and by the time he's giving these prophecies, he's an old man. Many believe that Haggai is in his 80s when he gives these prophecies. In fact, there are some older versions of the Old Testament that say Haggai and Zechariah wrote some of the Psalms in the Septuagint. I looked it up and I looked in the Septuagint, and sure enough, they say that Psalm 146 and 148 were written by Haggai and Zechariah. Now that brings us to the third question, what is the historical background of Haggai? Well, I've pretty much gone over it, but we'll do it again. The Babylonians captured Jerusalem and Judah. They began deporting Jews in 605 BC. And then a few years later, I'm going to say about 19, 20 years later, after they started deporting Jews to Babylon, they destroyed the temple of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Well, in 539 BC, the Babylonians were defeated by Cyrus and the Persians, and Cyrus, as we mentioned, permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That would have been about 66 years after that first deportation. Well, things at that time were exciting for the people of God. I mean, let's face it, you've been in Babylon, you get to go back to your promised land, you get to go back there, and you are actually authorized to rebuild the temple. And Haggai and Zechariah were two of the guys who apparently were elated and after having gone back to Jerusalem, they discovered, well, wait a minute, what's happened here? In 538 B.C., about 50,000 Jews go back to Jerusalem along with the high priest and Zechariah and Haggai. And once the people got back to Jerusalem, they started working on the temple. They began to build it in 536 B.C. According to Ezra, they got the burnt offering altar reconstructed and they restored in some semi-way some of the sacrifices Within two years, they had laid a foundation for where the temple was supposed to go, and the people were happy, and they're working, and, and things seem to be going well. But about that time, about two years into this project, you get these Samaritans and some other of their enemy neighbors, they started opposing the work of God. They started opposing the work of the temple. They saw the Jews 
building their place of worship, and they saw that as a real threat. So the people of God stopped building. The people of God became lethargic and discouraged. And instead of working to rebuild the temple, which was the house of the Lord, they just said, well, we'll just go work on our own homes. We'll just spend the money and the lumber and the stuff. We'll fix up our own places. We'll just kind of forget about the temple. So the building of the temple came to a stop for about the next 14 to 15 years until Darius came to office in 521 B.C. Now what happened is, in 529 B.C., Cyrus died. He was replaced by his son Cambyses, who reigned from 530 to 522 B.C., who ends up committing suicide, and he's replaced by Darius, Hustaspis, in 521 B.C., and Darius said, well, I'm authorizing the people back there to continue to rebuild that temple. And Darius was a political leader very interested in the Jews, very interested in their religion. He fully supported them, fully supported the idea of rebuilding the temple. So in the second year of Darius' reign, and you'll notice how verse 1 opens, and we'll take a look at this more concretely in two weeks from tonight. In the second year of Darius, so in the second year of his reign, which puts this at 520 B.C., God raised up the prophet Haggai and he said to him, you go tell those people of mine to get back to work and get that temple rebuilt. Both Haggai and Zechariah surface and they proclaim that message. That's the basic message both of them proclaim. Haggai's the first guy to do it. Haggai's specific job is you communicate from God a revelatory message to his people that it's time for them to get out of their spiritual apathy. It's time for them to get to work and get things done for God. It's time for them to get focused on me and get that temple back up. There are times, I think, when God's people just need to hear that. There are times when God's people need to hear, hey, hey, we need to get going. We need to get something done. We're focused too much on our own world and lives. We need to focus on God. That was the case here. Which brings us to the fourth question when was Haggai written? Well, I'll tell you what, you can pinpoint with great accuracy the time that Haggai prophesied. In fact, Gleason Archer said, of all the books of the Old Testament, this one enjoys the unusual status of being uncontested by all critics of every persuasion. There are six specific stated dates that are given in the book that pinpoint it exactly. The problem, and I'm giving the dates for you in your notes, but the problem is our calendar isn't identical to the Babylonian calendar or the Persian calendar or the Jewish calendar. So what we can just do is stick with the days and the months. But you'll notice that there is in verse 1 of the opening of Haggai, you have the second year of Darius on the first day of the sixth month. So here's the first message Haggai is going to give on the first day of the sixth month. Then in verse 15, you have the 24th day of the sixth month. That's when work begins. So get this. Haggai takes this message to the people of Israel on the first day of the sixth month, and 23 days later, they're working. 23 days later, they're at it. They want to get this done for God. The third date is the 21st day of the seventh month that we see in chapter 2 and verse 1, and that brings another message, which is 27 days later. And then the fourth message we get is on the 24th day of the ninth month. In fact, the last three all show up on the 24th day of the ninth month. So all of this happens 
Everything is happening here that's positive in 113 days. 113 days. So what we learn from this is in 520 B.C., Haggai, he starts proclaiming to the people of God, hey, you need to get serious about God and his place of worship and his word. You're leaving him out of the equation of your life. And in less than four months, it's done. That is an amazing movement of God. I mean, you just don't find too many books that have that kind of impact in such a short amount of time, 113 days. And what these precise dates do teach us is, man, these are factual events. I mean, we can pinpoint the exact time when these things happen. Now that brings us to the sixth question, what's the theme of the book? Well, the theme of the book is stated there in verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. There's your theme of the book. Haggai 1.8, get that temple rebuilt. Go get the wood that you've been, I think they were taking the wood they had and building their own homes with it. I mean, they're thinking, well, why let the wood lie around here for the temple? We'll just go. He said, you need to go back up there, get that wood. You need to get it back down here and rebuild the temple. And what God says to them through Haggai is, if you put me first, if you'll put my word first, if you'll put my will first, if you'll put my property first in your lives, then I'll be pleased with you and I'm going to bless you. That's what he tells them. If God's people will put God first in their lives, put him first in his house, put him first in worship, put him first with their finances, put him first in their program and in their life, then what God says is, I'll start showering you with blessings and prosperity, the likes of which you've never seen. And I think regardless of the dispensation, it's always true that God does bless people who put him first in all areas of life. I mean, And the other thing that you certainly learn from this book is when you're serving the Lord and somebody comes up and tries to put a wrench in your service or some block to you continuing to serve, don't get discouraged and quit like these people did. God isn't pleased with that, that we just get discouraged and quit responsibilities. I mean, he's going to hold these guys accountable. He's saying, you're missing out on what I could be doing for you if you got back to square one of where you need to be. Which brings us to the sixth question. What impact did this book have? Well, Haggai is only two short chapters, but his prophecies had a major impact because he's one prophet to whom the people listen. You know, it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. There are those moments when the word of God is presented and it touches somebody's heart and mind. We've seen that over the years in this ministry. I mean, there are times, for example, when we've presented the gospel and it doesn't happen all the time, but there are times when we present the gospel and someone right in the sanctuary, that very moment, trusts Jesus Christ as Savior. We've seen that happen over the years. And there are those rare moments, but they're rare. They're rare. There are those moments when you go through an exposition of the Word of God and someone looks at that passage and they go, you know what? That's talking to me, and I'm going to change right now. I'm going to refocus right now. There are those moments when it happens, but it's rare. Haggai is one of those rare moments. And in the next weeks, we'll take you through the book.
Well, I want to thank you for coming. Our time is gone. Good night. The Lord bless you.